We started a partnership with Spy nine months ago, directing you to see happy through their happy lens technology. It's been a fruitful relationship and Spy wants to say thanks by offering you a Christmas gift. A $500 gift certificate is up for grabs to somebody who uses our promo code in the next 10 days. We'll randomly select a winner from the names of people who use the promo code in December and one person will win. The promo code is podcast and it also gets you free shipping, a free surf splendor sunglass baggie and a free t-shirt. Just select any t-shirt from the website and the promo code will zero out the cost on checkout. Spyoptic.com promo code podcast. Get some sunglasses or snow goggles and win $500. Spyoptic.com promo code podcast. Thanks and happy holidays. Welcome back to the show. I am very glad to bring you today's episode with filmmaker Mike Zimbalist. He and his brother directed the new documentary film, Momentum Generation, and it airs on HBO tonight, December 11th at 10 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, and then on all HBO platforms the following day, Wednesday, December 12th. The documentary tells the story of the Momentum Generation themselves. Kelly Slater, Rob Machado, Taylor Knox, Shane Dorian, Ross Williams, Pat O'Connell, Kalani Robb, Benji Weatherly, Todd Chesser, Taylor Steele, and how this group of teenage surfers ushered in the performance era of surfing along with million dollar contracts and all the drama and all of the industry that followed. The Zimbalists have won Emmys and Peabody Awards for their production company, All Rise Films. In this film, they partner with Robert Redford's production company, Sundance Productions. In my humble opinion, the film is excellent and it's well worth watching, even for perhaps your spouse who may not have any interest in your surf fetish. It's a human interest story. And really the strength of the Zimbalists as storytellers is in the relationships within each story. Momentum Generation is rich with character drama There's a lot of new surf footage that I hadn't actually seen before. And then just really tons of nostalgic footage that is great to see again. It is one of my favorite surf films of 2018. I was lucky enough to view it at the Florida Surf Film Festival in New Smyrna Beach, right alongside Michael Zimbalist himself. Marcus Sanders of Surfline also joined us. And he and I jointly had the pleasure of interviewing Michael Zimbalist about this film. So you'll hear Marcus's voice along with mine in this interview. But real quickly, just one order of business before we get to that interview. This podcast network of shows is listener supported. And this month we're offering a thanks for your support in the way of a custom made surfboard. Mike Rowe of Hooked Surfboards on the Outer Banks of North Carolina is donating a board to one lucky donor in the month of December. Mike was a guest on last week's show, so I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode, episode number 246. There's been nothing but kind words about Mike and that piece, so thank you to everybody who chimed in. A number of listeners have monthly recurring donations set up via a PayPal button on surfsplendorpodcast.com. So those of you who do will all be entered to win. If you don't have a monthly donation set up, but you want to support this type of work, you can make either a one-time donation or set a monthly recurring donation. We recommend doing $5 a month. It'll go a long way to ensure that content like this continues in perpetuity. It makes all of these travel episodes possible, among many other things. So we'll randomly pick a name from the donor list on January 1st, and then I'll put you, the winner, in contact with Mike Rowe, and he'll shape a custom board to your specs. You will only be responsible for the shipping costs. Thank you, Mike Rowe, for your generosity, and thank you to all of you who keep this project going. There is so much more to come. Super excited about 2019. But for now, let's talk film. 
My co-host for this episode is Marcus Sanders of Surfline. He has transcribed this interview, and you can read it in its entirety on surfline.com. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. I hope that you enjoy our conversation with Momentum Generation Director Mike Zimbalist. What was your introduction to the momentum generation? Did you grow up surfing or? No, my brother and I were not surfers growing up. We grew up in Western Massachusetts, uh, so not on the beach. Um, But we definitely remember when these guys kind of burst onto the scene culturally in the 90s. And, uh, you know, we had all the gear, right? Still do. Um, So for us, I think we remembered kind of more the the cultural zeitgeist that we had grown up in and when punk rock came around as a part of that. So that was more probably what our knowledge prior to getting involved in the film, more so than the surfing side of it. And it was a few years ago, um, the producing team reached out to us and told us about the idea and introduced us to Taylor Steele, Rob Machado. Those were the first two guys we talked to. Then we spoke to the rest of the guys and, um, you know, the fact that my brother and I weren't hardcore surfers was something that uh, I think appealed to them in a way. Because for us, it was that we didn't want to make a surf film per se. We really wanted to focus on the relationships and uh, the bonds that these guys had had and the cultural side. Um, and then we're archive geeks. So the, the idea that Taylor was going to give us, you know, access to everything he'd ever filmed was uh, was really appealing and I think we were drawn also to um, sort of the, the opportunity and the story to look at some of the same questions that we grapple with in our lives around uh, the trade-offs of career and competition versus uh, you know camaraderie relationships um, and I think it was a story that having worked a lot in Latin America and um, in sort of really sort of dangerous environments and uh, in worlds that are very foreign to uh, to our own background. This was a cool opportunity to tell a story that felt a little closer to home, both uh, culturally and, and thematically. And the, those guys were always seen as kind of really happy-go-lucky and, you know, kind of bouncing around on the trampoline and eating cereal and all that right. kind of stuff, you know, and, and, and then... But obviously, once you start diving in, you see things are a little more complicated than that. Yeah. Yeah, it was, you know, one of our sort of conditions, as it were, coming into the film was, are you guys willing to, you know, be really raw? And, you know, if we're going to do this, we're going to probably dig under the surface and ask you guys to go to vulnerable places. And is that something you're willing to do that you want to do? And I think they were all ready and a little scared but excited about that possibility and the truth is that there wasn't um you know we did it we read pretty much everything that had ever been published and watched the different videos and you know just did deep dive research before uh we sat down to do the interviews and we're of course doing the whole archive collection at the same time but um there wasn't a ton on some of the uh, more difficult times that the guys had been through that had been published. And I think that's, you know, not a surprise, really. I think they were kind of being celebrated as uh, core athletes and cultural icons. And so obviously the publications that they tended to be in in the surf world primarily were going to be more fair weather and looking at their successes and kind of highlighting what's hip and cool and fun. And then once they dropped off the tour and maybe, you know, had bouts of depression or struggled with substances or um, went through some pretty heavy stuff, you know, around dealing with Todd Chester's death in particular, um, you know, that stuff wasn't as covered. So it was interesting because there was these big gaps, really, even in our timelines, you know, like there's a ton written about you from this year and then suddenly there's this gap. And that was that was much more the process of discovery for us, um, which is fun. I mean, that 
from a journalistic filmmaking side, it's really interesting to kind of get into well, what was happening during those dark years for you. And then what you start to notice is that it coincides, not surprisingly, when each of these guys kind of went through a darker period in their lives. And then it coincides when they all kind of start coming back together, reuniting and, and helping each other get not just back together as a group, but back on the right track as individuals. And of course, you know, the more you learn from one guy, you then bring that into the interviews with the other guys and they were learning stuff about each other and hearing, oh, wow, so so-and-so talked to you about that. And they really went there and, th and I think that encouraged them to also then, you know, feel like, okay, I can talk about, you know, what my feelings were at that time or what I struggled with. You mentioned that it was a requirement um, that if they wanted to participate, if they were willing to participate, you wanted them to be really honest and candid. Were there any instances where um, they weren't willing to really open up? Was there any important kind of part of the story arc that people weren't willing to engage in? No, um, not there really wasn't. And, and um, we're pretty grateful for that. I think, uh, you know, even in, in doing the interviews, um, that was something that we spoke about before we turned the cameras on, which is, you know, I'm going to be asking the questions and this is how we're going to do it. And if I ask anything or we start talking about something that you don't want to talk about, that's fine. And we don't have to go sure. there um, and just just say as much and we'll pivot. And nobody said as much. Good. You know, they were willing to talk about it. You, yeah. you said that the producers contacted you and your brother as the potential filmmakers. Right. Who, who are the producers and what was the original genesis of the idea? So, yeah, the, I mean, the idea to do the film really predated our involvement. I think there had been some chatter about it in the group. Um, you know, Kelly started this text thread that I think was pretty instrumental in, in getting the guys to reconnect. A lot of them had reconnected, um, you know, over the last years um, on sort of more uh, pairs or tripods had kind of gotten together. But Kelly was the one that sent out this text uh, wishing everybody uh, happy holidays, I think it was. And, um, and then that sort of started a daily communication that then led to their first reunion trip um, that they did as a group. And I think it was during that period that uh, there was some... Uh, initial ideas that they wanted to maybe think about doing a film. Uh, Rob Machado's manager, Justine Chiara, who also managed the Surfers, the music group that uh, PK and Kelly were a part of with Rob, she teamed up with uh, Tina Elmo, uh, Laura Michael Chisholm, uh, who at the time was producing with Robert Redford at Sundance, uh, and Tina Elmo is now producing with Redford. So Redford came on board. He had surfed when he was growing up, and so he had a lot of uh, nostalgia and knew this group and was interested. Um, and then they connected with Priority Pictures, uh, which is a, a company out of New York. Uh, the principals are Karen Lauder, uh, Greg Little, and um, Lizzie Friedman. And Priority produced and financed alongside uh, everybody I just mentioned, my brother and myself, uh, and Colby Goddard, our producer. We were all producers, and our company produced alongside Sundance, alongside Priority. So that was kind of the initial uh, producing team. And then how did <clears throat> the decision to go on, I know in Europe it was in theaters, and then here it's, it's on HBO. Mm -hmm. um, how, how are those decisions made about how that kind of film is released to the world? So it was made as an independent film, uh, you know, it was financed through independent equity, through Priority Pictures, and um, so the idea was we're going to make it and go out and sell it, and Universal came on board very early in that process. Um, in fact, sight unseen, we hadn't even shown them any footage, and they came on and they basically acquired uh, the rights to distribute the film throughout the world with the exception of Canada and the U.S., and then when we took the film to the Tribeca Film Festival, where it had its world premiere, um, there was a number of distributors that came out to that screening, including uh, Peter Nelson, who's a friend uh, that runs HBO Sports. And uh, we had lunch with Peter after that, and 
he was among those that uh, threw their hat in the ring there, and uh, and then HBO acquired uh, the U.S. and Canada. Were there any surfers who elected not to participate in the film? Um, there were a lot of surfers who participated in making the film who didn't make the final cut of the film just because we had... One of the interesting parts of that was that we... Uh, you know, I think for people that are familiar with, with the surfing world and this group, it's not a problem to have 15, 20, 30 guys on camera. But when we would screen it for people, I mean, part of our uh, goal from the onset was to make a film that was going to speak to people outside of surfing and outside of sports. And so when we would screen it for people, uh, when we were editing the film and we had you know, Jack Johnson was in there, and Conan Hayes, and Tim Curran, and uh, Ron and Raquel Hill, and um, Shane Beshin. I'm trying to think. There's a number of others who, you know, we shot lengthy interviews with um, that were in sort of earlier cuts. And as we started to get feedback that it was really hard for people to follow all the different names and of course, a lot of the people I just mentioned play these key roles in the story of the momentum generation. But if, you know, um, sort of you're, you're held to the fire and said, well, what's really the core story here and, and how do you reduce it? And then sort of that process that we got it down to the, the, you know, the subjects that are in the final film. As far as people who we reached out to who didn't want to do an interview, um, I guess there were a couple along the way, but fortunately none of them were really sort of the core core group or core parts of the story we were looking for. Do you give um, some of the key people anyway, maybe Kelly or Rob, um, the opportunity to review the final edit before everything gets published? We do not, no. And, and that's, um, you know, we really... At All Rise Films, uh, our company, and the work that my brother and I have done, um, you know, we really see it as journalism, and we make that clear up front. Like, if we're going to do this together, you're going to be taking a, a leap of faith as anybody who allows themselves to be filmed for anything is on a certain level, even if they have final cut and review and editorial control. But in the case of our films, yeah, that's not something that we offer. This has to be... Um, you know, has to maintain journalistic integrity. Um, and so, yeah, we, 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 uh, a lot of the guys saw the film for the first time at Tribeca. Um, there was a couple, uh, a couple instances where we did, uh, screen portions of the film for accuracy reasons, but it was, everybody knew that there was, they didn't have an editorial say. Um, it, but it was, helpful sometimes right i mean we have we were just talking about steve hawk he was great he actually um watched the whole film before any of the guys had seen any of it just from a journalistic perspective to let us know oh yeah that wave doesn't look right to me or let's look into this or i think there's some other footage that i remember that uh, evan slater helped us with that as well so we kind of work more on the journalism side and then we would show you know in a couple instances we'd go to the guys and say hey um, is this accurate to that story you're telling and so forth right because like <clears throat> surfers um, aesthetic is very nuanced in terms of what waves are and how a guy goes you know there's a left this day and a right over here right. and a lot of times people coming to surfing from not surf backgrounds visually see a wave you know, that's amazing. Yeah. The surfer looks at it and goes, that's a closeout. Yeah. Right? So you got to like, in a oh, way, yeah. you know, so, so is that kind of, those guys that helped you with that? Yeah, yeah. There was definitely some of that. I think we um, pride ourselves on getting pretty good at being able to um, do the inside baseball, as it were, with any world that we're playing in. Um, again, sort of just from a journalistic perspective of doing our research and being prepared and then bringing in experts to help with that process so that you're not relying on the subjects because then it does get a little bit more complex and you're also putting them out, you know, to be involved in all that. But God, it is pretty nuts. You know, people that have surfed their whole lives, not just surfed their whole lives, but then just really immerse themselves in surf footage and publications and so on. So yeah, the uh, the degree to which a lifelong surfer can notice things is really nuts. Really nuts. 
what's the feedback been from the surf community um, are, and certainly the people involved in the film, given that they don't have kind of final review of anything yeah. now that it's out there? Yeah. What's the feedback been? Man, I'm, I mean, I, I remember the guys being pretty nervous, you know, when we were going to screen the film for the first time. And we actually um, did a private screening for um, the core surfers in the film the night before the uh, premiere at Tribeca because to be in a room with 500 people seeing it for the first time can be a little nerve-wracking in fact Kelly didn't make it out the night before so we screened it uh, everybody that was there for the for the Tribeca screening came out the night before Kelly came in the next day so he saw it for the first time in a room with <laughs> hundreds of people and then of course was brought on stage for the Q&A with us and the, the other surfers and I think uh, you know he was it's hard you know because you're you're just kind of processing it you're processing the fact that you know you're basically your life story is being put in front of a bunch of strangers uh, in the case of this film, there's a lot of vulnerability uh, that's shown by the guys, and Kelly is no exception. And then, additionally, you're dealing with, you know, seeing, uh, you know, Todd Chesser being resuscitated, you know, and that's footage that a lot of the guys had never seen before. Um, seeing Todd talking again, um, stuff like that, that I think can also just stir up a lot of memories, a lot of emotion. And how important was, <clears throat> I mean, I remember Todd in that group, but like coming into it, some people might not know how important he was. I didn't know how important he was. I mean, we obviously knew that he had a role and we knew his death had played a, a hand in, um, you know, in all of their lives. But I, it was really quite phenomenal how each one of the guys on an individual level talked about how impactful he was before and after his death. Um, and then when you look at the narrative of the group as a whole, you know, when Todd Chester passes away in February of 97, that was, 97 was the last year that Taylor Steele made a film with that group. Uh, after doing films from 92 to 97, pretty much one year, and then that was the end of that. And it really marked a huge shift um, where the group started to uh, come apart. One of the things that we didn't have enough time to really go into in the film was the comparison of Todd Chester's death to Brock Little's death and Brock Little um, you know passed away not that long ago um, it's actually right at the beginning of when we started filming and they talked about how when Todd passed away I mean it was very different in the sense that nobody expected Todd to pass away it was completely right. a shock and with Brock you know he had been sick and they knew it was coming and so there was the preparation mentally you know and as a group for that but I think they also had learned a lot um, got matured in different ways to the point where when Brock passed away they really were there for each other and they talked about their feelings together and processed and when Todd passed away um, you know they they really didn't and that was one of the big reflections and because they didn't they all kind of went in in their own directions emotionally and physically and um and that really kind of broke the group apart so yeah it was really you know and even to this day i mean hearing shane dorian talk about how if it weren't for todd you know he probably wouldn't have become the big wave surfer that he is and how he still thinks there's a part of him subconsciously that's still trying to impress todd out there even though Todd's passed away how you know 1997 and each of them have I think a real personal connection with who Todd was as a mentor and then how his death really shook and, and shaped them and then one thing the that, that that generation momentum generation seemed to elevate surfing a little bit away from like a druggy dropout burnout right. thing and it was like this white happy kind of punk rock but like fun thing that kind of really I mean, the industry tanked in the late 90s, but through the mid-90s when it was right. actually doing well, it was kind of because of these guys and their relationship. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. 
Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah. And it was, you know, I think there was this confluence of factors. Um, you know, Tom Kern had obviously won the world title and had, was an American, but other than him, there really hadn't been an, a, a, an American surfer that had been at the top of the surfing world. And this was also now a group of Americans that um, were marketable. Um, it, and one of the reasons was because they weren't, um, you know, they were kind of putting out a different image that, that they were actually athletes. And that was a, a new thing. And of course, brands saw a lot of potential uh, behind sort of this cleaner lifestyle um, that was also hip and cool and young. and. I think Bob Hurley says in the film that surfing went from a, a subculture to a counterculture to an action sport and suddenly it was in the mainstream and, and then you have Kelly Slater on Baywatch and you know Shane's in In God's Hands and Pat's in uh, was Endless Summer too. Um, so, you know, suddenly these, and, and then so on, right? Like all the guys were starting to burst into more mainstream. You had brands getting their, their clothing in, in commercial shopping malls, uh, you know, as opposed to this surf shop, you know, that was isolated somewhere on the corner. So yeah, it was quite, quite a transition. I think the film, uh, the story is so compelling. The fi- the characters themselves are super interesting. This is kind of true with the two Escobars to the other film that you guys did um, or the other one that I saw of yours. The stories are interesting, but I think the strength of both those films is really in the quality of interview that you get from these people. It feels very confessional. It feels very um, almost like a therapy session. Mm-hmm. Um is I mean, how much of that is the driving desire behind this? Do you guys have a psychological psychology background? You seem to have like a real interest in connecting with the individuals and like getting these real kind of intimate details out of them. You feel empathic, like well, through the, through through the film, it feels that way. Thanks. That's a, a huge compliment. Um, our, I, I think we have a lot of that to attribute to our mother, who's a therapist. Oh, is that right? <laughs> so we definitely grew up with a, a therapist household. That's right. Um, and, um, and I think part of it, to be honest, is also just, um, you know, not necessarily coming from a place of being fans and, and being inside the world. Even when we are, it's like trying to look at it much more from what's the human story here and um yeah it's pretty remarkable i mean a lot of people very few people get an opportunity to sit in a chair in a quiet room and be and talk about their life for hours on end i mean in this we did uh the longest interviews uh in this film we've ever done i think Part of that was because we knew that there was more to the story that we wanted to find. And part of it was just because we were covering so many years and so many guys. But yeah, the interviews, I think Kelly's was nine hours. I think Rob's was a little longer. All of them were like six to eight to ten hour long interviews, sometimes over multiple days. 
and very few people get an opportunity to actually talk about their life like that and talk about it and and sort of look back on it and be asked questions that have them try and you know understand it perhaps from from new angles so it's you know it's a for me personally i was trained originally as a an actor uh, in a conservatory at nyu and then i ran a theater company in mexico for five years and i always loved sort of the the um scripted space and working with actors and working with emotion and for me, the interview process is kind of that same space that you get to play with. Obviously, the, they're not actors, it's real people, but you go on this journey together to kind of find what, what's the heart, what's the lesson, and what do I feel about it, you know? And you could bring in, too, like, as a, different from a therapist who just you're doing one-on-one, if you're talking to nine guys about the same thing, you have knowledge and you're able to ask, frame questions that nobody else could. Yeah, have that information already for sure. And even you know, it's kind of remarkable. There's quite a few filmmakers out there that go in and kind of wing interviews, and and we do a lot of research beforehand, and we like to write out, you know, hey Rob, you were this is a quote that you said in some obscure publication, and you know, '94 about this one event, and suddenly it. It also then that stirs a lot of oh yeah I did say that and I hadn't heard that quote since then and now suddenly it puts you back in that mind frame I think that that's really helpful and then you bring in things that other guys said which sometimes it, it'll become a um, oh yeah I forgot about that and other times it's a I didn't know he felt that way you know or it's like that didn't actually happen that way yeah or I wait did. let me correct that for a second my, it was bigger than his way yeah but suddenly what you find I think is that you're no longer doing an interview you're you're going back in time you know within so you're sort of reliving that part of your life and bringing a perspective on it that you know we rarely get an opportunity to do in everyday life I really think the impact of the film is in the deepest kind of moments in those interviews you know that's where the film is the most impactful Um, what is there any potential for something happening with all the footage that was left on the cutting room floor or the interviews that were was left? Yeah. The storylines and the people who didn't make the final edit, were we ever going to see that? I would love for something to happen there. I think, you know, we didn't talk a lot about the, the archival process, but, um, you know, we kind of pride ourselves on being archival documentarians and having done some really deep archival dives and... Um, you know, the two Escobars is a good example of that, where I think we licensed from 50 some odd different sources. In this, uh, in this case of momentum generation, we went out to over 200 sources and ended up licensing from 138, so more than double of what I think we had ever done before. And in that process, we were, I mean, we shipped, I remember one FedEx shipment, and it was like 500 and some odd pounds of unmarked tapes from Taylor Steele's storage unit in Southern California and that was just one you know it was like over a ton of tapes from Taylor and he was one of the 138 different sources we ended up licensing from and then you're talking about crazy different formats of old tapes and we end up digitizing and up-resing up-converting that stuff and then creating what you know we can confidently say is the most comprehensive well-organized archive of the momentum generation um if not surfing during these years that um that exists i think um we had uh i was going to name a bunch of the other guys that were you know alan gibby was really helpful ira opera um but then of course you're doing personal archives and you're going to broadcasters and so anyway we have this incredible archive now too um and then we have these interviews uh, that I think, you know, so many of these guys had, like, Shane Beshin's story is a fascinating story. I remember talking to Kelly about stuff, you know, um, around Shane when they had a sort of rivalry and um, what had gone down at, I think it was Quicksilver, and stuff around Shane kind of falling out from Quicksilver when Kelly came in and some of the stuff Shane had said that Kelly had no idea was going on, you know, during that time. Um, 
I mean, Sonny Garcia's interview was really fascinating. You know, talk about somebody who is willing to just open up and, you know, talk about stuff you wouldn't expect from that guy. I think he's talked about in some other publications now, too, sort of dealing with depression and different stuff. And, like, kudos to him for really um, shining a, a light on some of those issues. But, and then, yeah, people who aren't even in the film. And Conan Hayes' story is phenomenal. And, um, and then you have even the guys in the film. Like, we, had, you know, really covered their whole life story in so many ways that um, I, I really do hope something comes of it. And um, I don't know what it'll be. I think, you know, we've been focused, obviously, on rolling the film out. But depending on how the film does and whether there's demand for it, I think there's definitely the potential for some pretty interesting other edits to come out of it. I mean, our original edit of the film was like twice as long, you know, and had all these great little anecdotes in there, like the Tim Curran story of how he got, you know, roped into a Taylor Steele film for the first time is hilarious. What is the story? Oh, he, I think it was Focus, I want to say. I could be wrong about I that. I think it might have been. Yeah, and, um, and uh, boy, it was a while ago now, but he had done an alley-oop, and I'm trying to remember if it was one of the Malloys, I think, that saw him do it. And, in Ventura, probably not. Yeah, and then reached out to Taylor and said, you got to see this kid, he's got this move, you know. And then I think Timmy, like, I think, Taylor Steele said, yeah, come on down to my house. We're doing some pickups. I think they had already shot the majority of Focus, if I'm not mistaken. And Timmy goes down and sits down at, at, at the dinner table. And Betty Steele has this tradition of making everybody that's new at their dinner table sing a song before she'll serve them food. <laughs> and most people just kind of blow it off as a joke. But Timmy was like, dang, I really got to do this. And I think he had to sing like happy birthday or something. Which turns out now he's a professional singer. Yeah, so. exactly. And then when we talked to Betty Steele about that, so we had this whole edit. It was really funny about the pressure of him singing a song. And then he went out and, you know, and kept trying to do an alley-oop and kept trying. And it was on the, like, last hour of sunlight on the last day. And he finally got it and then had some, you know, full-on section in this film. And really kind of, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he then got sponsored by Quicksilver. And it was like a phone call within days saying we're going to send you to Indonesia with Kelly or say, I don't remember if it was Indonesia or some all, all was, Fiji or Fiji oh, and yeah. Fiji, yeah. he was on some surf trip with Kelly Slater and you know 16 he, years old yeah yeah and he just basically say it just completely revolutionizes his life yeah you know but then man then you know Tim Curran falling off the tour and like going through panic attacks on airplanes oh, yeah. and you know he talked about some stuff that was also really interesting that was in some original cuts of the film that uh you know exists in the edit bay somewhere <laughs> the good thing about the internet is it's 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 infinite so you could put little you know <laughs> little pods little, out there like, yeah you just throw a little the one thing i did want to ask about um i know i don't know how much time we have but this is i mean i spoke with the guys from um teton gravity about the andy movie Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of overlap, a little bit with the interview process, right? Mm-hmm. Kelly, they interviewed Kelly for sixteen hours or whatever, and they yeah. Bruce for however long, and yeah. they had a similar style of a, of a kind of confessional thing. I mean, did you did you see that movie while you were like, did you know about it, or like, was your relationship? I mean, with those guys in that process, there was no overlap at all in terms of um, you know when we were in production or even in the edit, because I I mean their film came out before ours. Um, earlier this year, I think. Um, but no, there was no overlap. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, I think, to be honest, I, I don't think I was really even aware of their film until it came out. And um, and I think we had just finished our film. So at that point, you know, it's like just releasing them basically in the same year is the only thing that ended up happening. It's funny to happen in concert. Yeah. Well, one thing I'm always analyzing, I think you probably are too, Marcus, is like, whether or not surfing ever impacts the culture at large outside of our little bubble, you know, Uh or how much it does impact. Right. I want to get a better gauge on what was your exposure to these guys when you were growing up? You said that you were kind of a casual surfer, you and your brother? No, not even. Not at all. Not even. Okay. Yeah, I was a skier. But you did say you were aware of them. 
yeah to a certain but, degree. but on more on the cultural tip you know like that fascinates me though that you guys even had an awareness of who kelly slater or any of the other guys were yeah as yeah. non-surfers yeah, yeah yeah and there's people since you know we finished the film that you know a lot of people every time we've screened it thus far um somebody has said that they didn't know they'd never heard of kelly slater when they right you know now they know who he is they watch the film but like to me that's a little mind-boggling too you know i don't know i'm so under the microscope with it that i don't (laughs) have a gauge on it but what i wonder is it might not be it might be a reflection of the quality of um films that were made when we were young like the endless summer was such a great film and that's why it appealed to so many people even if they had never thought about surfing before or cared about surfing right and so i wonder if you know, work like yours and even the Andy film can bridge that gap. That and certainly the platform of HBO and the digital platform yeah. that they have makes it available to more people. So it doesn't have to come to a theater near you or whatever. Like right. they can just access it. Yeah. But I'm wondering if um, you know we will start to see that bridge, that gap being bridged. Yeah, and then you, you know, add the wave pool phenomenon, exactly, yeah. which I, I mean, I think that's going to play a, a big part in it you know even even just the the you know kelly's wave pool in california i think has started to garner interest um people that aren't particularly surfers but just kind of want to go out there to experience this interesting phenomenon that they've created and and certainly for broadcasting potential it's you know a game changer so I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw the WSL teaming with a broadcaster to, you know, start really getting it a little bit more into mainstream broadcast. I mean, that is the goal for the WSL, you know, growing the audience that way. And I, it's interesting to see the crowd last night here. There's certainly surfers in the crowd. It's mostly surfers. But I saw people who I don't think surf. And they probably just live in New Smyrna or somewhere near, and they saw the poster yeah. for the film fest at their local coffee shop. Right. And they're like, hey, let's go do that. That's something to yeah. you know, just participate. Well, hey, listen, HBO Sports just uh, announced that they're no longer going to be doing boxing, so maybe they, uh, maybe they need to take on surfing to fill that gap. What was the experience in Tribeca? Where, I mean, probably a lot of non-surfers, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, for the, sure. I, I would premiere. say, yeah, primarily. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was great. It was, you know, I'm such a geek that, like, the thing I was so pumped about was that the tech was great. You yeah. know? Like, of course. It was, like, a beautiful wraparound screen, and the 5-1 surround was just, like, per- like, the mix was exactly as we had heard it in the soundstage. And I was just like, yes. And, of course, it was, you know, it was packed out, and having the surfers there and a bunch of other people that were involved in the film so it was it was really cool man it was really cool i mean the the premiere that hbo just did in la was pretty rad too tech wasn't as good but the space was so beautiful and they did a really cool um after part you guys that we were just talking um wrote or you guys wrote an article about it um that in surfline that i thought was great just sort of talking about bringing the 90s back and um, the offspring was playing and Kelly and Rob got involved and that was um, yeah I don't know if it, both that and Tribeca I think were really meaningful you know one of the most meaningful was when we went and screened it in uh, Oahu we did the Honolulu Surf Film Festival and a number of subjects in the film came out including Jeannie Chesser and everybody that was there um, was so uh, giving so much love to Jeannie. It was so cool, you know. I think we won the the best film and dedicated to Jeannie, and she kind of accepted it. And I thought, man, that was really, that was to me a really special moment. She's a special woman. Yeah. Um, I'm going to take a photo, and maybe we just pretend like we're still mid-conversation while I take the photo. Sure. Or, or maybe to... Um, do you have any closing questions that you want to tee I mean, up? I, so? I, I was just going to, like, as a, as a closer, kind of, what... Like, what would you want a hardcore surfer to take away from the, like, we talked about the non-surfer and like the relationships and stuff, but what do you, what do you feel like an actual really hardcore surfer you want them to take from the movie? For me, like when we focus grouped the film, it, it was, there was definitely some surfers that we wanted to have, you know, giving feedback, but it was primarily uh, non-surfers and non-sports 
you know, oriented people. Um, and that was really sort of the target. And so somewhere in the back of my mind, I thought, oh, well, you know, surfers are probably not going to receive this as well, or they're going to tear it apart for this reason or that, or they're just not going to, you know, it's not going to resonate with them because it's not a surf film, you know, in a traditional sense. And, and then we screened it in Honolulu um, at the Surf Film Festival. Um, and then we've since done, uh, you know, we did Chad Davis's festival, North Carolina Surf Film Festival. We did uh, one in Orleans Surf Film Festival, Santa Cruz Surf Film Festival, London Surf Film Festival, Surf Film Festival here. And I'm sure I'm missing a couple others. And um, those have been, far and away I would say the almost the most enthusiastic audiences which for me is really rewarding I didn't expect that particularly in Oahu I thought oh man Oahu you know having filmed out there you know it's it's uh, for good reason historically you know like pretty opinionated place and if you're gonna do a film that deals with the North Shore like there's a lot of people that are gonna kind of look under the hood and find out what you didn't represent well but it so I was very surprised at at the reception there and how excited people were and I mean honestly I think people surfers in particular really appreciate the the non-surfing elements of this film you know just like getting to know these guys on a superhuman level um your camera I'll take a sure do um I know you're probably still in full rollout mode for this film, but any upcoming projects that you started to outline or look at? So we we released a um, feature film earlier this year called No Sachape with Fox that um, is the story of the Brazilian soccer team, Chapecoense, who had an airplane crash in Colombia, uh, killing almost everybody except for three players and a couple other survivors, and it sort of tracks the rebuilding of the team and really is a story about how a family grieves the loss of, of loved ones. We um, just uh, had the broadcast premiere last night of another feature doc called Give Us This Day that follows three police officers and three residents in East St. Louis, which is the city with the highest homicide rate in the US, and we follow them for a year. And um, so it's cinema verite, you know, completely different film than, than this one. Um, and then we uh, just released last week also uh, Tricky Dick and the Man in Black, which uh, is the second film in our Netflix uh, music series. It's called Remastered. It was on my home screen this afternoon when I pulled up Netflix. Oh, was it? That's yeah. really great to hear. You yeah. never know how it's like populating on other people's... The algorithm, yeah. yeah. Well, when it said remastered, I thought it was maybe a remastering of an old film. Well, hopefully, as more of them come out, you'll start to recognize that it's the umbrella brand of the, yeah. you know, uh, the, the docs, uh, the docs, the <clears throat> doc series that we're doing with them. We did the first one uh, was called "Who Shot the Sheriff," uh, about the uh, shooting of Bob Marley and and who was behind it. Uh, the third one is about to be announced, but there's yeah eight feature films in the first season, and it's an interesting rollout that Netflix hasn't really done before, um, where it's one per month rather than sort of binge dropping them all. So they're each kind of getting their own treatment. I'll watch it. I'll watch the um, Johnny Cash one. Oh, is good. Johnny, yeah. Yeah, Johnny yeah. Cash. Yeah, it's when Johnny Cash visited uh, Nixon at the White House and was asked to play music, asked yeah. to play. Uh, redneck songs in order to boost uh, Nixon's southern constituency and Amazing. Johnny Cash had other ideas. So where can listeners find all your work? Is there kind of website <coughs> that lists everything that you've done other than IMDb? Yeah, All, all Rise Films, our, okay. our company, allrisefilms.com, awesome. and we've been updating that with all the latest trailers and posters and everything for each of the projects. And then Momentum Generation available on all HBO platforms as of December 11th. It's okay. uh, gonna drop on HBO. Okay. Radical. And is there any plan for any big screen or no? Just HBO. Uh, yeah, yeah. that's so, you know, a, that's, a, HBO, that's the trade-off you take when you yeah. go with HBO. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, other than the festivals, I mean, we're doing right now. I think it's won 11 awards thus far at film festivals, audience award at. Uh, Tribeca, the Surf Film Festivals I mentioned. This is there was the 
the statue, the little... Uh, it's right here, right? Oh, here it is. Yeah, that Chad gave us last night. How cool is that? It's awesome. It's that their is, logo right there. I know. It's like, you just don't see that kind of a cool award from festival, film festivals. But I think surf film, like, all the surf film festivals so far have, like, we have a local artist that's doing their own thing. And, like, yeah, check that out. Isn't that rad? It's so like, rad. It's metal waves and it's really it's cool. So... But you know it's like yeah. some artist made this. It's like really a piece of art. Um, but we played um, Aspen Film Festival. And we, we're going to play at the Whistler Film Festival. Uh, it's going to be the closing night film. So that'll be the Canadian premiere. Um, we're playing at the Tahoe Film Festival. We're going to screen at Newport Film. Um, and... What's that? Any San Francisco dates? Um, God, what was in the Bay Area? No, I don't know that we're screening in the Bay Area before the premiere, before the broadcast premiere. Okay. But those will be, I mean, those are obviously theatrical screenings. That'll be really right. cool. Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for hanging. Yeah. Special thanks to the Florida Surf Film Festival for hosting myself, Marcus Sanders of Surfline, and Mike Zimbalist. You can learn more about their fantastic work at floridasurffilmfestival.com. They'll actually have a booth at Surf Expo in January in Orlando, Florida, and I'll be joining them there. Uh, Chas Smith from Beach Grit, as well as Matt Warshaw of The Many Things, currently the Encyclopedia of Surfing.com or EOS.surf. He'll be joining us as well, so stop by, say hi, hang out for the whole weekend, in fact. And then you can find a transcribed version of today's show on Surfline.com. That is all thanks to Marcus Sanders. Momentum Generation premieres on HBO December 11th at 10 p.m. and on all digital platforms two hours later on December 12th. Enjoy it. SurfSplendorPodcast.com is where you go to see the trailer, and while you're on our website, click the donate button to drop some change into the bucket you will then be entered to win the custom-made hooked surfboards by mike Rowe. and of course spyoptic.com is giving away that 500 gift certificate to somebody who uses the promo code podcast on their website before december 20th it's the season of giving i thank you all i am grateful to continue this work okay this is david scales i'll be back next week with an all-new episode of surf splendor Until then, get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred on.